technologies out there that can detect your emotions. Sentiment analysis has existed for quite a long time. Voice biometrics have existed for quite a long time. Speech recognition has existed for quite a long time. It's just that what's happened is in the last 10 years is that the accuracy level of these technologies has got to a point where they're actually ready for production. Welcome to The Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you both with me on this episode focused on the future of voice AI. Excited to have two serious voice leaders and evangelists that think about work on the future. Let's start with some introductions. Kane, if I can start with you, would you care to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in the saddle alongside Roger as well. It's been a little while. So yeah, my name is Kane Sims. I'm a founder of a consultancy called VUX World. We help organizations plan and execute customer experience strategies with a focus on artificial intelligence and namely conversational AI and voice AI, which is what we're going to talk about today. Awesome. I noticed you were named a top 10 voice AI influencer by VoiceBot and a top 20 voice AI influencer by SoundHound. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. It's not been a very long time in this space, you know, but it's changing so fast. So it's nice to have some experts in the room that that have spent, you know, their probably their 10,000 hours, you know, if that's what defines us as, as experts. But thank you for being here with us. Roger, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, well, first, uh, Kane, nice to see you again. I'm with a legended voice in the room. So, uh, <laughs> Kane Sims. So, I've been working with voice and conversational AI since 2018. I work for Samsung and as a developer evangelist. So, what I do is talk to companies, designers, developers, and talk about conversational AI and how we can use conversational AI to drive really their business goals forward. Or, you know, if it's not a business, they're creating a game or having something fun or something useful in really exploring how voice can be where it is the best user interface and oftentimes where it is not a good user interface and kind of building the the appropriate tooling and capabilities for the job. Nice. Thanks for being with us, Roger. I noticed that you are also the ambassador of the Open Voice Network, working on a voice registry system, kind of like a DNS for voice applications. Also the CEO, Chief of Voice Craft, a voice app. Can you tell us a little bit more about those two things as well? Yeah. So Open Voice Network is an industry consortium, you know, voluntary people from all walks in the industry really getting together and talk about standards, right? So if you look at the platforms, it's pretty fractured right now. And so the whole idea there is, wow, we would all benefit if we talked about some standardization. So it's a working group. I've been focusing on that registry system part of it, but there's a lot of things around privacy, around interoperability, et cetera. So it's an exciting place to be. And, you know, so we, we call ourselves so all a lot of ambassadors for it, kind of like that term. And then, yeah, I have a small, it's a little on ice right now, but I built a, several voice applications for the different voice assistants through uh, VoiceCraft, my company, primarily things that are fun and games, you know, something to end of the day, kick up your legs, go talk to your voice assistant and have some fun. No, it's great. It's great to hear that you've had experience at developer level as a leader, you know, in one of the world's biggest companies, but also at the standard level. I think that that multitude experience is is really helpful, pertinent uh, as an expert here. You know, someone's really passionate about it when they finish work and they start building voice apps in their spare time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice. There you go. And Kane, for VUX, do you guys actually offer services? Does your organization offer services? Tell me a little bit more about what you guys do. Yeah, yeah. So it's strategic consultancy and we help organize it. One of the biggest challenges that companies face is trying to figure out and demystify this whole landscape. Sure. If we're going to automate some of our customer experience, how exactly do we go about doing that? How do we select the right technology? How do we kind of put together the right kind of teams? What do we do as far as where do we start with use cases? You know, how do we design a good conversation? How do we implement that? What's the best practice for improving it over time? There's a whole range of things that businesses struggle with. And that's what we're there to do is to help them do that. And so we can do things like roadmap planning, you know, use case assessments and validation, conversation design training a whole bunch of stuff around what it takes to, one, plan 
properly, how to put together a right strategy, and then two, how to go about executing that as well. And so yeah, we've been doing it for now for around about four and a half years in total. And yeah, it's still one of those areas where, you know, there's just big, big gaps in knowledge and experience at the enterprise level. And so companies like ours are there to try and help fill those gaps where we can. Awesome. I love that you have that deep expertise and they're actually not only putting on events and leading conversations, but when you're actually there in the trenches, then it makes a big difference when you actually do the work. Definitely. Yeah. I and mean, we didn't really mention, what I haven't mentioned is the media side, which is what most people know us for, which is the podcast, the newsletters, the articles that we write. And, you know, it's every single day we publish something somewhere to try and help educate and help guide people in the right direction as far as how do you do this? Why should you do this? What are the challenges? How do you overcome them? Who should you speak to about certain very specific challenges and those kind of things? And so, yeah, it's almost like we're running two companies at the minute, which is uh, mad. Complicated, but awesome. It would be good to kind of give the listeners a little bit more insight into the marketplace, sort of the industry and how things have evolved in the last few years, given how much has changed. Can you guys give us kind of your overall, your overview, essentially, of where we are today? Yeah. Well, first of all, conversation on AI and voice, and it just keeps on improving at this really dramatic rate. What I think has happened a lot in the last couple of years is there's been a little bit of shift of the industry focus from consumer to B2B side. I think this was kind of inevitable. There's still strong, you know, consumer and those are going along and doing pretty well. But I think what you're really seeing, and this is pretty exciting, is on the uh, the B2B side is businesses and companies realizing, hey, you know what? If I put a conversational AI voice interface in front of this, this is going to be better for my workers or my customers, et cetera. And so what I really see is innovation on that side. You call up the call center now and you're like, oh no, I'm in the dreaded IVR. And all of a sudden it works really well. Well, what is that? That's really conversational AI coming into place instead of those strict rule bound kind of old school IVRs. Now it's actually understanding what you want to do quickly. And you're not, you know, mashing the zero key to get a person because it actually works. And so to my mind, the biggest trend I'm seeing is definitely innovation in the B2B space. And I think that's good. You know, there's a saying in Silicon Valley is B2C is where it's sexy and uh, B2B is where the money is. And it's good to be focusing on the B2B side because I think it'll be a lot of innovation. And as people get used to interacting with companies via voice, they'll also be more comfortable interacting at home with their voice assistant. And it's kind of a, it's a virtuous cycle. What you're saying there, Roger, I mean, if you look back at 2018, 2019, there were stats around which was saying that, you know, 33% of UK households had a smart speaker, 37% of US households had a smart speaker. And this is a few years ago, kind of like in, going into the pandemic. And as Roger kind of alluded to there, what these things have done is they've gotten people used to and comfortable talking to stuff. And so when you do call your bank and all of a sudden it's an AI assistant that answers the phone, there's a bit more tolerance there. And so around about the same time as when people were buying smart speakers and the adoption of smart speakers at one point was faster than the smartphone, if you can believe that, what was happening at the same time is that it was around about the same time that Facebook released the API's ability for third-party developers to build conversational chatbots in Messenger. And so a bunch of companies started building chatbots and stuff like that around about 2016, 2017. And then as the adoption of voice assistance began, those companies started really kind of like learning how to build chatbots properly over the course of 2019 to 2022. And the mature organizations, the HSBCs, the Verizons, the, you know, Citibanks, those kind of organizations have now kind of scaled what they've done, put it across multiple different channels. And so it's text, it's voice in the IVR, it's on the website. And at the moment, it's forecast, I think it's Juniper that forecasts that uh, in the US alone, spend on conversational AI technology by the end of next year is going to be 148 billion, I believe it is. And so it's really, really ramping up and, and the progress over the last five years, not just on the technology side, but on the adoption and implementation of this technology has been pretty significant. So clearly it's big, right? The world, if the majority of us have access to this now, like in our pockets, in our homes. Roger, you talked about this being, you know, moving more quickly, kind of current state in the business field. Talk to us a little bit more about that, like, some of the bigger industries that are embracing this and some of the movement that you see? You may not know it now, but when you talk to an IVR, uh, especially if it starts working well, you're talking to conversational and a conversational AI system. So I think, you know, whether that's your bank or your airline, et cetera, 
One thing I think is really interesting and makes a lot of sense is I think McDonald's, was a, they bought a voice company and you're seeing a lot of these fast food and they're talking about their drive throughs right? Well, that's really a really good use case for voice, right? And it's kind of a limited set of things that can order. So it kind of fits and should work pretty well. But I'm excited about that. You know, there's this whole concept, I'll call it the deskless worker. And this is people who don't sit at a desk. They're out in the field. They're salespeople. They're repair people. You know, anyone out there. Okay, so what do they have to do? They often go out in the field and they have technology they have to work with. All right, but they're busy with their hands and they can't do it. If they can, there's a voice interface in front of that. That's a big win. Or, you know, we've all had it. You're talking to someone, right? And they have to put their, you know, down, look at the computer screen and do something. That's not really natural. So as we start building voice interfaces in front of this technology, you get to be maybe a little more natural. Um, maybe the voice, you know, can you can ask it in the middle of a conversation for some information and then continue the conversation without that laptop, touch my keyboard, which kind of breaks the flow there. Yeah, I mean... It's interesting when you were alluding to Google and why they might be interested in this stuff, you know, if you look across businesses, 90% of data within organizations is unstructured data, as in data that can't be accessed via an API, can't be understood logically, can't be searched, can't be analyzed. And so Google's job is to gather unstructured data in the form of text searches and stuff like that. And so you're right, there's no wonder that they're interested in this kind of stuff. But when you think about, we talk about voice AI, but really what we're alluding to behind the scenes is natural language understanding. And that's the real key component here, because that's the thing that takes meaning from a set of words. And so on the business side, you know, industries you asked about who's using it, I mean, insurance, financial services and banking, things like that, retail, hospitality, travel, healthcare, all industry sectors, government, where you've got a lot of customer demand, you've got a lot of pressure on the business operations, very difficult to recruit staff, very difficult to keep people in jobs and all that kind of stuff. Increasing demand, especially, you know, if you look at some retailers, some retailers have had phenomenal sales over COVID. Some healthcare institutions have had incredible pressure put on them over COVID. So the amount of influx of customer contact has risen tremendously. And AI is one of the ways in which businesses have been trying to manage that. And there's some really good use cases at the very large side. You know, if you look at the likes of Deutsche Telekom or Verizon, you know, they're using chatbots on their website to encourage uh, customers to self-service so they don't need to call the contact center, making better use of their website. Uh, if you look at a company like Bank of America, you know, world-renowned for its voice assistant, its mobile app, incredibly helpful, or about 10 million interactions a month, I think it is, that they, that they handle. And then you look at, you know, Verizon, and they're doing agent assist use cases where the people in the call center, they're having a conversation with a customer, but they've got an AI assistant on the back end that's actually helping them through that conversation, suggesting what the customer's after, helping them process transactions quicker, which reduces the average handle time of the call, which saves the company money. There's a whole range of areas where this stuff's being used. And then you can look at things like emotional AI and, and sentiment analysis and conversational intelligence, which essentially can monitor conversations like this or monitor calls in a call center, summarize calls into extract intent. It can do all kinds of analysis, business analysis. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Voice biometrics for authentication that saves banks millions and millions of pounds per year just to identify who somebody is. And so the breadth of this technology is quite wide and the application of it is inherent everywhere. Voice is a very good input. And so a lot of what Roger was saying there around field workers and stuff like that, the task that they're being given is a terrible task. They work with their hands out in the field, yet they have to do their work on a tablet that's this big with a set of gloves on and thumbs that they can't type with anyway. And so it's like, it's a really, really good input device. And so the applications of it, although we're seeing a lot of application, we're seeing some real business benefit from it and customer benefit from it, we're really just scratching the surface because there's not, if you take all the companies in the world, you're probably looking at 10% of them that were re who are really utilizing this stuff now. And that might even be a stretch. I think it was 2015 when Amazon kind of had their Echo device kind of come out. But then, you know, every other major tech company seemed to come out with one shortly thereafter. And any thoughts on, on why that moved so fast? Interesting question. One is that the go-to-market for those devices was very effective. Google were giving them away with free with Spotify subscriptions and Amazon dropped the price to the point where they were actually losing money on every Echo they sold in 2017, 2018, because they were just rushing them into houses. 
the aim of those devices strategically from Amazon, Google, et cetera's perspective was get the devices into households and establish a footprint because it's the controller of your smart home. It's the controller of your music. It's now, you know, becoming the controller of your daily tasks and those kind of things. And so really it was a case of a real, real big effort on behalf of both companies to get adoption and get these devices into homes. And I think that a lot of the market and a lot of the price reductions was certainly a huge factor. But at the same time, and I'm sure Roger's got a load of thoughts on this stuff as well, which is that it was the first device ever which existed solely to speak to there's been no device ever in, in the history of technology the only point of this thing is to speak to it doesn't even look that great the first one was just like a circular hockey puck thing and all you could do is speak to it two buttons on top and so there was a novelty factor to it as well which is that this is really cool and really new and it's and then there was an accessibility factor as well a lot of older kind of people were using it and stuff like that and there was a really good play for for kids for games and homework and all that kind of stuff and so it was a myriad of a whole bunch of different things ranging from the novelty factor to the go-to-market to deployment strategies from from those companies. But I'm sure, Roger, I'm sure you've got some kind of other thoughts as well. I completely agree with you. I, I think it's instructive to look at what's the core business model of these companies. Okay, so Amazon wants to sell me more things. And any retailer knows that the more you are top of mind, the more likely the consumer is to buy from you. So I may be just checking the weather with Alexa or playing some music, but I'm interfacing with an Amazon product which sometimes throws a little ad or something in there to my chagrin sometimes there, but that's helping them be top of funnel, top of the mind and sell more things. Google is an advertising company, right? So let's be face it, they are, they wanna be in there, but they wanna collect some data to really in the end advertise to you better and understand, understand what you're doing better. And so both of them had really strong incentive to get into the, the home, as you said. You know, I agree with you. I think it was the novelty of it. I also think it's really easy. You know, I'm a technologist. I live in Silicon Valley, around Silicon Valley. It's really easy to think, oh, well, everybody understands technology super well. And it's just simply not true, right? You know, I can see it in, in my in-laws, right, are always struggling in that and with how do I do this, how do that. And all of a sudden you had this device and it was so simple and it was technology and I didn't have to learn how to communicate with the device. In theory, at least, this doesn't always work perfectly. I could just talk to that device naturally and have something happen. So that's really removes a bunch of the friction from the technology side. And I think a lot of people saw that and said, wow, this is really cool. I don't have to learn how to do all these things to make something happen. I just ask it just like I'd ask another person to do something and something happens. And I think that was a huge amount of the initial appeal was the simplicity and a lack of needing to understand the technology. Did either of you guys watch Knight Rider, the Knight Rider show? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. David Hasselhoff, Michael Knight, you know, it was Kit, right? Yeah, yeah. The Knight Industries 2000. <laughs> it seems like we're, we're getting closer, right? <laughs> yeah. But any thoughts on the current state of, you know, the automobile industry and kind of their integration? It's such the obvious place. For a voice interface, the very best place, right? Your hands are busy. You need eyes on the road, safety there. And I don't, you know, I don't know post pandemic, but there is some, I believe it's one, is it a trillion hours? I hope I'm not an order of magnitude off that in the US people spent commuting, right? Now it's probably a little less now, but that's a lot of hours, right? That are people are behind the wheel, right? And that's just the US. And if you globally, it's, you know, n times more than that. And so, what do we typically do in the car, right? It's kind of passive. I listen to music. I'm a big fan of listening to the podcasts there. But voice and one, they're, they're fabulous for controlling listening to music or listening to the podcasts there. I have the little Spotify car thingy in my thing. So I can say, hey, Spotify, right? And talk to Spotify and it does what I want it to do when I'm on the, the road. But I think it lets you think about, hey, not only can I do these passive things and passively, but I can play games. You know, there's a company, Drive Time FM, that's all about, these are apps, but they're voice apps that you can play games in the car and have some fun there. And so it's, or maybe I can, you know, I can even do some business, right? And get some probably simple things because it's a voice interface, which has things that you can and can't do. But it's such an obvious place to me where a voice interface is the very best way of interfacing with your technology. And so 
despite everything that's been done in the car, I think 10 years from now, we're going to be like, boy, we were living in the Stone Ages back then <laughs> versus what we could do in a car with voice. Mm, definitely, definitely. We'll see people driving old cars by themselves and be like, oh, look at that cowboy over there. Like, look what he's doing. You know, like, yeah. the Flintstones doing it. Yeah. Let's shift and talk a little bit more about the future. Kane, you talked about some of the advancements of voice AI. Tell us more about some of the sophistication things that are trending that, that'll make it even better. To be honest, the technology itself is pretty good. You know, it's the reason why Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, Bixby, it's the reason why those things even exist today is because the technology is actually pretty good. You know, there's companies out there like Yobi who can pull out a voice from a noisy environment, like on a train or something like that, and you can process and understand what that says. There's technologies out there that can detect your emotions. Sentiment analysis has existed for quite a long time. Voice biometrics has existed for quite a long time. Speech recognition has existed for quite a long time. It's just that what's happened is in the last 10 years is that the accuracy level of these technologies has got to a point where they're actually ready for production. And so most of the things that are hindering that future that you mentioned, which is that everything is voice enabled and we don't have to look at screens anymore. Part of what's hindering that is just simply the adoption from the businesses and also from, you know, customers can't adopt it unless businesses are using it in some way, shape or form. I've got loads of smart speakers, but the use cases that I just mentioned, which is read my latest Pocket articles that I've saved to Pocket, I can't do that because Pocket hasn't built the skills in those places for me to do that. And I can't go into my bank's app and just ask it to transfer me $5,000 from a savings account because it just that capability doesn't exist in my bank's app. So it's not even a technology problem, I don't think. It's more a case of businesses adopting these technologies in the right places, building customer confidence and iteratively rolling it out. There is definitely, though, things that need to be improved on the technology. Things like accents have, have traditionally been a problem, although they're getting better. Things like, you know, if you get into the minutiae of it, the studies are from 2020 and 2019, which is that, you know, certain speech recognition systems recognize white American males better than they do black American females, for argument's sake. So there's definitely some kind of adjustments that need to be happening as far as uh, accessibility and equality is concerned. But mostly, I think it's a case of actually just using the technology and putting it to good use. And I don't actually think that vision you were talking about, which is that everything's voice enabled and screens disappear, I don't, I don't actually think that that is where we're heading because voice is good for certain things, very good as a fast input, very good for data capture, very good for those things you were talking about there, which is emotional recognition and, and all that kind of stuff. But it can be bad for some use cases there's a lot of businesses now that are actually using omni-channel experiences where you might call the call center and begin talking about something there, but then they might send you a text and you might need to send them a picture or send them a video of yourself so they can ID you or whatever it might be. And so I actually think we're moving to a world where voice, it, although it was kind of like on its own channel and built to be the future, which I do think it still is, also voice, I think, is going to infiltrate all of our existing digital channels to the point where it's another modality in those channels as well. It's a principal modality, but it's it's not a single modality, essentially. Hey, I'm seeing this, but I'm also seeing this on the screen as a confirmation or to show me some options so that I may select that next thing. Exactly. It might default to voice only when your headphones, but then it might default to a multimodal in, on your mobile. But then actually what starts out as a voice only interaction or what starts out as a multimodal interaction might turn into the other depending on the use case, you know, and a voice conversation might turn to a text conversation, text conversation might turn to a voice conversation. And I think that the whole concept of devices and modalities, I think we're going to see fuse to the point where it becomes about the best option for that particular thing that you're trying to get done based on where you are and what devices you've got access to, you know. Sure. So we might get rid of some screens in the process because it's just become more natural, but we also might just be pairing and integrating more to make it natural too, right? Mm, mm, exactly. If we jump ahead 10 to 20 years, any thoughts on what that could look like? Over the long term, things tend to happen a bit quicker than you might think. But in the short term, it feels as though progress is quite slow. So if you think about where we were five years ago, you know, 2018 or so, Amazon Alexa and the smart, and the smart speaker kind of movement was kind of just getting started, really. You know, there wasn't that many skills in the skill store. There wasn't that many devices on in people's homes. And so, you know, in five five years' time, like now, as in now, 
uh, from five years ago, the devices are everywhere. It's, it's a household name. Everybody knows what it is and it's, it's become established, essentially. The stuff around everything being voice enabled was really hyped up in 2019. You know, you look at CES and there's voice enabled toilets and there's voice enabled this and voice enabled that. <laughs> and I think where, where we've settled to, and I think COVID has played a, a big part in getting us to this point, which is that all the frivolities and all of the kind of like superfluous stuff, which was just put voice anywhere it can go because it can go anywhere. You just need a chip and a mic and an internet connection. It's really become about put voice where it deserves to be and where it should be. And so I think the next five years are going to be figuring that out. There may be coffee machines that actually don't have voice uh, control within them. There may be toilets that certainly don't, because how lazy do you have to be? They aren't listening. The toilets are not listening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You've still got some degree of privacy. And so I actually think the next five years is going to be more about not voice being everywhere, but voice being in the places where it does its job best. And so, and I think that's what I would encourage anyone who's considering exploring voice technology to do is to not get carried away with the hype and some of this stuff that we're talking about, but be focused on where can it be applied to make sense for your business and sense for your customers. But in 10 years time, I hope certainly that we've broken through that and we are at a point where, as I mentioned, the pockets of the world, the Evernotes of the world, the the services that you use on a daily basis are accessible from any device and any modality fundamentally. And so if I want to take a note on my watch or if I want to, as we've been talking about this use case about reading articles to me, or if I want to check my bank balance, or if I want to, you know, move an appointment or set an appointment or join a Zoom meeting or whatever, whatever it is that I need to do, wherever I am and whatever device I've got with me or on me, I should really be able to do it from that. And increasingly so, voice is going to be a big part of the interface modality in those environments. Because I don't know if you, if, if your listeners have, have used like a smartwatch or something like that, but tapping on a smartwatch is a nightmare. It just is. It's terrible. Typing on a phone to send a text message is a nightmare. Working your way through apps to get to the right place and tapping and swiping is just so long. <laughs> Those are the things that are going to start to disappear slowly but surely. Even on a computer, I dictate all my emails now. I dictate all the notes that I write. I'm using my voice for almost everything. And so maybe I'm a, I'm a bit of an anomaly in that respect, but I don't think I will be in 10 years time. I think that we're going to be using our voice more to get things done. However, I don't think we're going to be at the point where we've got ambient computing everywhere. It's going to be doing absolutely everything for us and it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. I think we're probably a little bit further away from that. But Roger, I'd love to get love to get your thoughts on where you think it's heading. Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I very much agree with uh, your vision, Kane, and what you're talking about. Yeah. I love the fact you're talking about get back to the basics and what works over the next five years. Because I think we as an industry got our vision way ahead <laughs> of where people <laughs> actually wanted and wanted to use use a voice assistant. And I think we're, there's been a little retrenchment in a really good way around saying, okay, what is, and think in a multimodal way, what is the best way, should this have a voice interface? So I, I'll share, there's a little, little saying, uh, an old boss of mine who's a legend in Adam Shire, had and he's like, if it's on screen, then maybe the UI is the best place to deal with it. If it's not on screen, then consider a voice interface. I don't think that's hundred percent true, but I think that's a, those kind of paradigms and thinking about, okay, if I can't see it, maybe I should voice enable it. But if it's already there and it's right in the screen in front of me, maybe I voice enable it. But it may be just as easier and more efficient to go click on it. And I think the art and science of that multimodal design will advance over the next five years. So I very much agree with you, Kane, is it's kind of perfecting that, really understanding where this modality makes the most sense for what we're trying to do and makes it easier. Because we all want to get things done, right? I pick up a device, I want to get something done. What's the fastest, quickest, easiest way to get it done? And that may often be talking to it, tapping it, et cetera, a combination there. Yeah, in, in 10 years, I will say, I'll say, maybe this is beyond 10, but what I'd really like voice to be is imagine if you had a, if you have a human assistant, you can go ask them to do things. You know, travels are my favorite. Oh, I need to fly to New York next week. They would know, oh, well, you know what? Roger flies United a lot. He has miles there. I'll book it on United. Here's the hotel he likes to stay at. Boom, boom, boom. They take care of all these things for you. Yep, it's done, it's booked, you're leaving next Tuesday at, at 3 p.m. out of San Francisco. All right, I'd like to see voice get to that level where 
I ask something in general and it understands enough of what my desires are, what my preferences are, that it goes and really completes a fairly complicated task for me and in returns. Frankly, that's not so much about voice. It's a lot more about the AI behind the voice and what happens there and really having, I call it putting the the smart, you know, the assistant, make it a capital A assistant where it actually gets things done. Because right now what we mostly do is we bark commands. And that's fine. We're at the bark commands stage of the tech. But actually, instead of asking it to do something and then have a, an, you know, an, an agent go off and go do all these things and then return with voice being the primary interface is where I'd like to see things in, in 10-ish years. We'll see. It works on the business side as well. I mean, if you imagine calling a retailer to make a complaint or you want to return an item or something like that and you call up the retailer should know the phone number because it's probably on your account they should know what you've just purchased last because they know what you've purchased and when it was delivered so they should be able to preempt what it is that you're calling about okay so we know that someone's bought something two days ago we know it was delivered there's either an issue or they've got a question about it and so what the assistant should do over the phone or in the chat interface there is come out with that and say are you are you calling about the such and such that you just bought two days ago yes i am okay well what What's, the, what's wrong with it? And all of a sudden, now you're having a contextual conversation personalized to that customer and their need. It's easier to do that on the business side, in theory, because you've got control over that data. What we're talking about here on the assistant side, on the Amazon Alexa, Google Assistant, Apple Siri side kind of thing, becomes a lot harder because that data exists in lots of different places, lots of different private organizations that have it, and it becomes a real, real challenge to do. In addition to the conversation we had with our guests on today's episode, we asked another expert to provide their insights on the future. Hi, I'm Kim Asperling, and I'm the director of creative production at A Million Ads. And what we do at A Million Ads is essentially we create data-driven audio ads. So they run across all digital audio platforms. So if you're listening to podcasts or you're listening to music via digital radio... What does AI voice look like 10 to 20 years from now? Well, put simply, I really think it will be an integral part of our daily lives. It's going to be almost impossible to distinguish the difference between human and AI. Now, now something that we do really need to be wary of and considerate of is we really need to create trust and protect privacy in this new voice AI world. And it's going to become really, really important for advertisers who already, you know, struggle to gain trust. So fortunately, most ad tech companies are already doing this in the right way. But as always, it only takes one bad apple. So I think we're going to see a lot more regulations in place to keep up with the pace of ever-growing AI. Any thoughts on sort of you know, this notion of, we mentioned preventative and that got me thinking about like the healthcare space and health in general. Thoughts about how this will play into that in the future. Yeah. Well, there's some pretty amazing technology that can actually listen to your voice and start detecting there's something, something is anom- there's an anomaly, right? I'm speaking slower or something a little different than I did yesterday. Better go see your doctor or even uh, starting to detect some things. I think somebody was playing with vo- with COVID actually and listening to your voice and can actually, there's some telltale sounds about how voices change and whether you had COVID. And I've heard that with several other ailments there where it could be detected. I think that's really powerful. You're absolutely right. The notes right in there, right? Because especially now, I mean, doc- because of the insurance industry uh, requirements, doctors have to document. They spend all their time typing things in and doing that. And there's some really cool tech around that to say voice enable this so doctors can focus on what doctors should be focusing on, which is, you know, caring for the patient. The other thing that's really interesting is, uh, you know, medication adherence. You know, so you go in, you have an issue, doctor stitches you up or takes care of you, and then you got to take one of these for the next 10 days. Well, you know that the, the adherence is really, really low. And what happens then? That person comes back a couple of months later because whatever the underlying issue is wasn't resolved with that medicine. And so this idea of using a voice assistant for adherence to kind of remind people or, you know, almost be a nag, so to speak, or just be something or did I take, you know, older people, right? As you, you know, you start losing a little bit of your memory. And so did I take my pills or, or recording it that way? Did you take your medication? Exactly. You know, it's funny. My, when I got into voice and I talked to my doctor, 
this is what he wanted to do. He was like, oh, I really want something that tells people to take their medicine, right? Or reminds them or helps them record that they did that. Because he's like, that's one of my biggest problems is people, if they took their medication, they'd be okay. But they forget, they get busy, you know, they throw it in the, in the kitchen counter after at cabinet after using it a couple of times. And then unfortunately, they're back in a couple of months with an ailment that could have been resolved. So I'm super bullish on voice in healthcare. Yeah, there's lots of different areas as, as we've kind of got into. I think there's definitely some on the operational side. There's a reason why Microsoft acquired Nuance for $20 billion, because Nuance are knee-deep in operational integrations within all of the major healthcare systems in, in the US. So it's definitely making doctors' lives easier. There's been some research into how to make surgeons' lives easier as well. If you think about your operating table, you've got your hands <laughs> hopefully full doing something productive. You can't really do much else while, while you've, you've been sanitized and all that kind of stuff. So there's some, there's some interesting use cases there. Also on the customer side as well, I don't know if you're listening are interested in checking out something called Warbot, which is a mental health chatbot that essentially you can have more or less a free-flowing, fairly open conversation with, and it will help guide you and help you with your mental health, you know, help you deal with stress, anxiety, and a whole bunch of other things. And so talking about saving lives, there's instances where, you know, maybe an early intervention from something like Warbot potentially can save lives. There's been some interesting uh, use cases in India where a chatbot was created on Facebook Messenger to help women suffering with domestic abuse and they found that it, the usage of that peaked at 2am in the morning because, and they specifically chose chat not voice because they don't want to be talking to something in a house with an abusive husband and that helped a, a whole bunch of women get help and stuff like that and so there's all kinds of different use cases internally in the operational side externally on the kind of consumer side and also in that bit in between where you as Roger was saying you know getting your medication reminders appointments scheduling and booking all of those kind of things where the customer and the entity need to do something together I think there's some big opportunities for it there as well it's interesting there's a I think it was USAA insurance who released a, a bot and they thought you know it's going to answer simple insurance questions for people. Uh, and then they realized people are actually asking, like, getting a little personal with it. <laughs> and because, think about it, you don't talk to your insurance company <laughs> unless something usually bad is happening. Right. Right. And so what they realized is they thought, you know, there is sometimes, you were talking about mental health, there Kane and, and people feeling, is there's been some stuff, they saw that, is that people are getting more personal than sometimes they do. The people that they talk to on the phone there is some people may be more comfortable talking to a bot, right, which isn't judging them or they're thinking that it may judge them, than actually talking to a person. So I think the mental health issue is really interesting or just a sympathetic ear, which was a lot of that, the minor saying that USAA bot issue was, was they made it a lot more sympathetic, right? It was very businesslike and they needed to make it a lot more sympathetic because people were literally complaining and this horrible thing happened and I got in a car accident what do I do? You can think you can think of how that's an emotionally charged thing. And then you got to deal with, oh, my insurance company, right? So sympathy there was was important. So I think I think it's interesting to see the human behavior when you're communicating with a bot and how that may vary from what someone would how they would communicate with with a, someone in person. Bright open area of of study and probably opportunity to do some pretty amazing things. Anything that we can do to make those day-to-day -day tasks even easier in that hands-free environment, thinking about, you know, a busy young family, um, someone cooking, being able to do things at the same time and really multitask is going to be super significant. Thinking about advertising and obviously what we do at A Million Ads, we already work with actionable audio companies like Say It Now. And what we essentially do is we work with them to create dynamic ads for brands like Barocca, where customers could buy the product simply by using a voice command. So it's really instant and we've seen some amazing, amazing results off the back of it. But how do we actually take it one step further and utilizing that free flowing conversation I mentioned earlier, be able to interact with AI in a way that isn't just like a buy now message, but a useful and enjoyable experience all personalized to us, something that we're actually in control of. 
Any thoughts on the future of a voice kind of connected to robotics? I mean, I'd like to say, Alexa, do the dishes and take out the trash and do the laundry and order me my favorite pizza, you know, like all, all in one breath. But <laughs> do you guys have any thoughts for the future there? And we're obviously spending time there, but I'm interested in your perspectives as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know where I stand on the whole on the whole home robot thing. Again, we were talking about references to old uh, programs, so we've talked about Night Rider. I'm sure there's a few people who've seen the Jetsons in the past, and yep. uh, whether we're heading to that level of robotics in the home. I know Amazon have launched Astro and stuff like that, which is the kind of first edition of in-home robot, and there's a couple of voice-enabled Hoovers and stuff like that. Honestly, don't know where that stuff will will head. To be honest, fundamentally, because there's only a handful of things I can imagine it doing, and I wouldn't really want it following me around the house. Having said that, if you'd have told me 20 years ago I'd have been talking to a hockey puck in the side of my living room, then <laughs> I might have thought you were a bit mad then as well. But certainly, what do robots do? Is the exact same answer to that question as when you ask what does an assistant do? What does a digital assistant do? Which is, it does grunt work. The people don't like doing or they get tired of doing you know a bot never has a day off and never has a sick day doesn't want to put annual leave in never has to leave early to go and pick the kids up so it does stuff repetitively consistently over time and so i think that we're going to see definitely a proliferation of robots in the enterprise and robots in areas in public and whatnot where that kind of grunt work is needed how is our voice how is a voice interface going to help or hinder i think People, if you look at Sophia, one of the you know famous kind of like uh, humanoid robots, if you like, you see a robot like that and immediately you just assume that you can talk to it. It's the same thing when you see a digital avatar on screen or in an app or if you want to get into the kind of metaverse conversation. Digital avatars inherently must be able to be spoken to because that's exactly what they're embodiment of a human being. And so if you ever have a, a robot in the world, wherever it is, whether it's on a factory stacking boxes or whether it's in a house stuck in the dishwasher, if it's got a face, if it looks like a human, it needs to have a conversational interface because there's just an expectation there. I also think there's room beyond that when it comes to the practical side of it like it, it would be ideal to be able to ask your washing machine what's wrong with it be able to ask the robot if it's got a problem how to debug it how to fix it all of that kind of stuff that you need to google and watch youtube videos and figure out yeah. how to do stuff should be solved by not just the voice interface but having the capability to serve those needs as part of the software but yeah i think that in closing anything that has that looks like a human you should be able to speak to and, and voice is, is naturally the only real modality of doing that yeah, I, I think it'll be. I don't know. I share Kane's a little bit of skepticism of where robots are going to be. The Jetsons robot that does everything in the home. I think we're going to get, I don't know if we're going to get there. I think a little simpler. Your guys' example is great. And I, I mean, just, just yesterday, I was trying to figure out something with my microwave, right? It was a weird setting. And, you know, they have 27 buttons and it's, and it's like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this thing so needs a voice interface, right? For me, just ask what, what it is. Or why isn't the manual in some voice accessible way kind of embedded in there so I can ask it, oh, what are your examples? What's the error code there? So I think we'll start see you start seeing smarts in our machines that are in our home that start approaching, they work better. A Jetsons robot, well, when it can do the laundry and do the dishes, all for it. But I'm afraid we're going to go through more kind of gimmicky things on our path there. And that's okay. I mean, yeah, yeah. you start playing. Sometimes the best place with technology is do gimmicks and play with it. And you, that's the foundation upon what, what you build something that's truly useful. So it's okay to be gimmicky. There is a really good use case, actually, in the UK. They probably have similar in the, in the US. It's being trialed at the moment, which is a robot that will drop shopping off at your door. Oh, so yeah. it will go to a local shop. It's only a little thing. It's just like a little car. It's got a lid on it. And it will, you put the shopping in. You'll order it online. The people in the shop put the shopping in. They put the address in. And the bot will go on the pavement really slowly, and it will navigate to your address. I can see the use for a voice interface there. Maybe if you're a really loyal customer, it might use your voice biometrics to open the lid and authenticate that you can actually access the shop in. Maybe though, actually, it will have capabilities that you might want to ask of the shop. Or did you not have, or it can actually be, again, be proactive, or we didn't have any milk, sorry, you know, or, or you can ask what time do you close tonight, or you can ask whatever it is about the ingredients or what have you. So I can see some capabilities there where you've got, again, 
bots doing very specific, repetitive, tedious jobs, but as an enhanced kind of capability, maybe there's some voice interaction that could be useful there. I've always said that opportunities for voice are kind of the barbells. So with young kids, right? Because they don't have they don't have all these pre-built conceptions about how it's going to work, and they're very patient. And then older people, um, because they didn't grow up with technology, and it's still very intimidating to them. And so the very friendly voice interface, non-technical way of interacting with their technology, is is fabulous for them. So some of the, I, see, I see that you know it's those barbells. That's where the greatest opportunity are is the youngest and the oldest can really benefit and really uh, probably be the people who may me use voice in, in ways that the rest of us aren't yet. I'm also really looking forward to seeing how, you know, we regulate this side of AI. For me, as I said, trust and connection is super, super important, especially within advertising. And there's a certain amount of trust that needs to exist between brands and consumers to connect, especially when we're talking about a channel as personal and intimate as audio. You know, thinking about when you listen to podcasts and you really trust, you know, the host that you're listening to. So, you know, with celebrity voices, for example, a logical idea would be that, yes, well-known voices could license their likeness to be used as an AI. But one of the reasons brands like to use a celebrity is because it carries that level of familiarity and trust. You know, I choose to listen to that podcast host because I trust them. And so if they're, you know, recommending something to me, I want to do it because I believe in them. So If we're using a celebrity voice AI to try and convey trust without the celebrity's direct involvement, we need to ask, you know, are we actually crossing an ethical line here? There's a really great passage in this book um, called Invisible Woman by Caroline Criado Perez. And the short of it is that after the Enron court documents were leaked, all the internal company emails became public, right? Making it the largest database of genuine human-to-human interactions. So you think, okay, you know, that's perfect for training voice AI programs. Unfortunately, though... Enron gender makeup had a heavy male bias. And so smart speakers actually carry that same bias. Similarly, speech scientists have a lot of white male speech data taken from their databases of things like TED Talks, which, you know, again, skew towards that bias, unfortunately. So if you're a woman and you'd like to test this yourself, next time your smart speaker is not actually picking up your voice, try and speak in a lower, deeper voice and they'll be able to probably pick you up a lot better. As we think about where VR is going with not just analyzing your voice and having conversational UI built into it, but also your eye movements and your emotions and some of your body language. Any thoughts on on how this will play into kind of the the metaverse? Well, in the metaverse, you don't have a keyboard. If you're wearing a headset and all you have is your eyes fundamentally, it might be a recognizing time where your hands are in that, you know, without holding on to some controls and you'd be able to recognize where your elbows and knees are and stuff like that. But we're not, we're not kind of there yet. So in the absence of that, the navigation really seems to me the perfect way of navigating the operating system within the metaverse is, is a voice user interface. But then also, even within there, you know, there's definitely going to be digital beings that are not actually real, you know, digital avatars, virtual humans, and interacting with them is going to be through a conversational AI. So I think there's definitely a whole load of opportunities for this technology in, in that kind of space. I'm not, again, tend to be a bit cynical with certain things like in-home robotics in the metaverse. I think it's early days. The metaverse, I think, might actually skip a generation. You know, I don't think my my, uh, my dad's not going to be wearing his VR headset and, <laughs> and uh, you know, going to the club and, and playing cards. But I think the operating system level needs some kind of navigation capability. And I think voice is perfect. And then within those environments, as more use cases and scenarios get built in them, I think we're going to see actually interaction with virtual beings being dominated by a voice interface as well. Yeah, so I'm bullish on voice in the metaverse for all the reasons Kane talked about. I think that those virtual beings is something that people are starting to pay attention to, but maybe maybe not enough. You know, if you have an established, you have a presence in the metaverse, that is up 24-7. So either you have people in there staffing at 24-7, or you start having virtual bots, right, that people can have conversations with, either to handle it when it's not staffed or to just 
handle the the overflow. And I find it, I think it's really interesting. Um, there's a startup called Inworld. And what is his name? Ilya Gefendin, Gefendin, I think is the guy I found it. This is all about voice and bots in the metaverse. And that's the vision is that you're going to need bots in the metaverse to make it work. And uh, he's the guy who invented, who started up API.ai that became Google's dialogue flow. So pretty well established in the industry. And I think he's a, there's some interviews with him that are pretty interesting to, t- to understand this more. But yeah, voice is going to be a critical part of the metaverse. A side little thing that I think would be fun is I go into the metaverse and I get to, you know, dress up my avatar, however it looks like. Why can't I have something, you know, a little tech that changes my voice or makes my voice uh, customized the way I like it? I mean, that's not a great business use case, but we all, part of the fun of the metaverse is changing who you are, right? And having your kind of, your alter ego. Well, a different voice could be part of an alter ego as well. Around ethics. There's obviously been a lot of debate on the ethics of sort of AI and voice assistants that, you know, listen to all. Any thoughts on that? Um, that's the kind of the first question. And the next question I'm going to ask is like, how do we continue to design for the future? Knowing that, you know, we can play a role. People, thought leaders like yourselves can really play a role in helping us design the future. So you're not going to stop the advancements in tech. This is not going to happen. So attempts to do that have failed throughout history, actually right? To slow, to slow things down. So if that's going to be true and the technology is going to get better and better and better, then we need to, to, to work together to think about ethics and privacy and what does that mean and what, you know, part of the, cha- the privacy, and I could go off on a whole tangent with privacy, is everybody likes to talk about privacy and it's a hot topic. And yet for the general consumer, they, you know, they click through the EULA, they click through, they don't pay attention, you know, the little thing that pops up in the web about the cookies, who pays attention to that? I don't, right? And I know what they're, they're asking me there. And so how do you protect privacy in a way that people can understand? Because I think the way that we handle privacy right now is these complicated legal agreements and pop-ups and things that don't make sense. So how is it that I can give Kane's company, right? I'm interfacing with him via his company via voice. I'm just making this up, right? I give you permission to store this information about me and that and do these things for me, but not for my permission to go here. I don't think we found a UX or a way to do this that isn't kind of techy and geeky and, and unusable there. So I think there's an opportunity, maybe voices involved there, uh, AI, to allow the permissions, I for allow me to set permissions in a usable human way that is certainly very, very different than what, what happens today. I don't even think that even in the conversational AI or voice AI space that the whole concept of ethics is really being grasped properly yet. I mean, everyone's rushing onto the hype and building chatbots and voice assistants and launching stuff and that, but they don't really think about what's, what the reality of, is of what they're doing. Is What they're doing is they're capturing data from customers, speech data, textual data. That data has been processed in the whoever cloud, whatever cloud it is you're using, Amazon, Google, whatever. That text is being stored, you know, and monitored and and kept for however no who knows how long. Nobody hardly the built voice assistants today has any GDPR policies in place. I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, you can only store certain data if you absolutely have to. You have to have a reason for it and a policy for it. You can only store it for so long. It has to be deleted automatically after two years, even if you are storing it for a certain reason. There's a whole range of things that you need to do when it comes to gathering data from from people and I don't think anyone's really considering it one of the things that we do regularly is to consider that ethical side of things because also depending on the use case that you're using certainly from a business if you've got a a voice assistant that's there to process passports for somebody that assistant now has autonomy and it has authority it can say no you can't have a passport And all of a sudden, when there's this bot, this kind of virtual entity, you've got no recourse, you can't argue with it, you can't kind of do anything other than just accept what the machine tells you. And so we're we're going to hit a real ethical kind of minefield when these assistants start doing things that are, you know, 
things like that that are more important that have an impact on people's lives trying to get a parking permit the boss says no what do you do about that you know and, and if you're trying to cancel insurance the boss says no you're paying for your insurance constantly and there's a whole range of things where you know we have to question whether it's ethical to allow an ai assistant to do some of these things because what's the impact of that on on people you know amen is all i have to say to that last comment there <laughs> Kim. nice you guys chose to kind of specialize in this area. And obviously, it's, I see you both as thought leaders in this space. For others that might want to get involved, any career advice that you, you would share? Well, Roger alluded to the shortage of talent in this whole industry. You know, it requires very specific skills around conversation design, around machine learning, around data science, and a whole bunch of things computational linguistics and a whole range of skill sets that are needed and you don't need to have a you know a human computer interaction degree to be able to do some of this stuff there's a lot of conversation designers that were playwriters or that were content designers and things like that and so and a lot of developers for example that build websites for a living with no JavaScript, and so they can build a lot of this kind of these solutions themselves. And what I would say, if anyone's interested in exploring this as a career path, I can only offer the advice that I did myself, which is I read everything I could get my hands on about this stuff. I bought every single book that exists on how to design and develop these systems. I've read every single one of them. I read, I've got notifications set up on my email. So anytime Google publishes or Google ranks an article that matches any of these phrases, voice AI, voice assistance, conversational AI, it pings my inbox. I meet people regularly like Roger and, and others. And I think networking is important because you'll unlock opportunities. You'll learn from people's experience and just read everything you possibly can get your hands on. You'll find yourself that within 12 months, you'll know what you're talking about and you'll know your stuff. And then thirdly is roll your sleeves up and get on with it. If you're interested in design, go and set up a voice flow account and design some stuff. If you're interested in development and machine learning and figuring things out, then go and uh, get access to a Cognigy platform or, or Deepgram's APIs for speech recognition. Just roll your sleeves up and have a play around because that's how you're going to really learn how this stuff works. And ultimately in time, you'll develop the skills, you'll develop a bit of experience and a career will be you know, sitting in front of you. Here, here. I'd say uh, add, listen to Kane's podcast. <laughs> I would say that as well. Thank you, Roger. Uh, yeah, yes, well, I, I, I will do the self-promotion <laughs> for you. And then, no, I, I mean, so he said read, but also listen. There's some great podcasts out there. Listen. Uh, and uh, your Kane's as one of the very best ones. And and we're on, on podcast as well. So listen to this podcast. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, I will... I bang my fist on the table talking about conversational designers because I think it's such an opportunity. And it is not, you know what, and it is, you're right, if you have done playwriting or you're an English major or you've done that, you have an advantage. This is all about understanding how people communicate and how they talk and then going, okay, now I need to, you know, design something for a machine or really understand that. That is not technology skills. This is all about really a combination of, you know, English and psychology and those kind of skills, those, those more social sciences and humanities skills. And I think there's a grand, grand opportunity for that, for people to jump in and we need more conversational designers. And then I just go play, right? If you're a developer, you absolutely can go and build for Alexa or, or Bixby or Google and go play and, and they have their bone. But if you're not, Right. There's tools like, you know, like voice flow. They're really gooey, drag and drop, go play. It is really, I think a lot of people when they try, they're like, oh, this will be easy. And I will tell you the more when you build a voice app and you start thinking about it, it gets harder and harder because you realize human communication is rich. There's lots of different ways to, to communicate. And so it might gets you to think about that. But yeah, go play with one of these tools. You can do the deep, geeky developer code in Node.js. Or you can use these drag and drop tools, but just a great way to understand and think about how a voice interface will work. So, Kane, tell us more about your podcast as well for our listeners. Cool. Yeah. So it's called VUX World. VUX World. It's on all the podcast players. VUX.world is the website. You can find it there as well. We, very similar to this, really, we find industry thought leaders, practitioners, business leaders who have utilized conversational AI and natural language processing technologies for the benefit of their customer experience, their business processes, and their customers. And we pick their brains about how they do what they do so the people tuning in can do what they do better, which is build and deploy better conversational assistance, higher quality conversational AI, and 
all that kind of stuff. We've had Roger on in the past. We've had people from Samsung, Google, Microsoft. We've had big businesses like Comcast, Mercedes, the whole kind of nine yards. And so if you're interested in how conversational AI can be used to improve customer experience and improve business processes, then definitely check out VUX World. Cheers. Thank you. You know, thank you for all the insights and wisdom as serious, like, you know, evangelists and, and leaders in, in the voice AI space and loved hearing your thoughts and, and just great to have you on the show. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Good pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you again, Roger. Appreciate it. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for The Future of an Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening. Thank you.